Episode 32. Let's discuss the hypermetabolic response in the burn injury. Etiology is due to moderate to severe burn injury by inhalation, high voltage electricity or total body surface area more than 20% involved. Clinical features includes the hyperdynamic uh, circulatory response that is tachycardia and hypertension, increased gluconeogenesis and increased insulin resistance leading to the hyperglycemia, increased basal metabolic rate leading to increased basal body temperature, increased protein and lipid catabolism increasing, leading to increased lean muscle wasting. Treatment includes early burn ex uh, excision gra grafting and also beta blockers that is propanolol and glycemic control with insulin and nutritional supplementations and also the anabolic steroids such as oxidrolin. And it is occurring because of increased inflammatory mediators which increases the catecholamines and also glucocorticoid and glucagon. So, although this burn patient is evaluated due to an apparent gastrointestinal issues, abdominal distension and intolerance to the enteral feet, several features of his presenting symptoms are concerned with possible sepsis, the leading cause of the mortality in the patient with sepsis burn injury, with severe burn injury. In such patients, early diagnosis of the sepsis is often challenging because clinical signs may not be non-specific and often overlapping with those with post-burn uh, post hypermetabolic response, which I already told you. Careful attention must be given to following findings heralding the uh, onset of the sepsis, several of which are seen in this patient. Temperature if less than 36.5 degrees Celsius or more than 39 degrees Celsius, that is uh, 97 or 102 respectively Fahrenheit. Vital signs changes includes the progressive tachycardia more than 90 per minute, tachypnea more than 30 per minute and refractory hypotension due to systolic blood pressure less than 90. Evolving laboratory abnormalities such as leukocytosis, leukopenias and thrombocytopenia can also be there. Evidence of the hypo organ hypoperfusion will be there and also dysfunctions will be there. As such, uh, uh, you see various features such as the oliguria or uh, new onset of the Enteral feeding intolerance, which can uh, cause the high gastric residual volumes after a period of tolerance, which may reflect the splanchnic hypoperfusion leading to the intestinal uh, gastrointestinal hypomobility and ileus, which leads to distended tympanic abdomen and decreased bowel sound. In burn patient in whom the sepsis is suspected, investigations for an infectious source, for example, blood cultures or quantitative wound cultures, should be initiated along with the empiric antibiotic therapy. Therapy. Now let's talk about the flexible sigmoidoscopy. Flexible sigmoidoscopy can be diagnostic and therapeutic for sigmoid volvulus, a potential cause of the abdominal distension and the foot intolerance. However, sigmoid volvulus classically evolves over several days versus one day in case of the severe burn. Okay, occurs in elderly patients and uh, does not cause the fever unless the perforation of peritonitis is there. And if peritonitis is there, you will see the abdominal rigidity also. Although the patient with abdominal distensions, there are no signs of the peritonitis that is a rigidity on examination. Therefore, exploratory leptotomy is not the immediate indication. Bladder pressure measurement can estimate the intra-abdominal pressure when the abdominal compartment syndrome is there. Uh, intra-abdominal hypertension causes the organ dysfunctions is suspected. Abdominal compartment syndrome presents as abdominal distension, trauma, and burn are high risk for abdominal compartment syndrome. However, patients typically have tense abdomen versus in this patient it was soft abdomen. And if intubation is done, usually requires increased ventilation support to oppose the increasing abdominal pressure on the diaphragm versus this patient's minimal ventilation was setting. Okay. Our GI obstruction can be there for which we can uh, see the endoscopy is needed. 
but uh, yeah endoscopy can detect the upper jaw obstruction and can cause a high gastric residual residual but is unlikely to cause a generalized abdominal distension if little passes through the stomach okay this patient distension and tympanic abdomen and decreased bowel sound are more consistent with the alias from the sepsis induced planktonic hypoperfusion so the basic objective of this question is the patient with severe burn injury are at high risk of sepsis and acute enteral intolerance may be an early sign of sepsis indicating the end organ hypoperfusion or dysfunction now let's talk about the prosthetic joint infection so prosthetic joint infection can be early onset delayed onset or late onset so uh, it uh, these are with respect to the time of time to the onset after surgery okay so if it's less than 3 months that is early onset if it's 3 to 12 months that is delayed onset and if it's more than 12 months then it is late onset presentation of the early onset are acute pain wound infection and breakdown and fever will be there but delayed onset presentation would be chronic joint pain implant loosening and sinus tract formations and delayed onset would be acute symptoms in previously asymptomatic joint and also the recent infection at the distant site so if it is early onset and you see the acute pain wound infections or breakdown and fever if it is chronic or delayed onset and you see the chronic joint pain loosening of the implant loosening and sinus tract formation and late onset the acute uh, symptoms is previously asymptomatic joint and recent infections at distant site okay and the most common cultivar organisms of the early symptoms are the staphylococcus aureus and gram negative ross and anaerobics and uh, of the the Uh, of the delayed onset is the coagulase negative staphylococcus and propanibacterium species and also the enterococci and of the late onset it is the staphylococcus aureus gram negative rods and beta hemolytic streptococci so yeah one more time i will say early onset staph aureus gram negative rods and anaerobes delayed onset coagulase negative staphylococci propanibacterium species and enterococci and late onset it's staphylococcus aureus gram negative rods and beta hemolytic streptococci So this patient has an subacute pain in the prosthetic knee six months ago after the arthroplasties. So this patient is in six months, so it's uh, almost the delayed onset. The synovial fluid anal analysis shows a mildly elevated leukocyte count and predominance of the neutrophil. This is consistent with an inflammatory proce process. More likely, the prosthetic joint infections. The uh, leukocyte count in the synovial fluid in the prosthetic joint infection is usually elevated to more than. Uh, really about that noise okay so more than 1000 but is often lower than in the septic uh, joint okay where it is more than 50000 prosthetic joint infection can be acquired by perioperative contaminations of the joint or by extension of an overlapping wound infection the infection due to the virulent organism staph aureus and pseudomonas aeruginosa typically present within the first 3 months after the surgery that is the early onset with acute pain fever leukocytosis and overt local sign of infection such as erythema and purulent drainage not classically seen in this patient okay and the infections due to less virulent organisms example the coagulase negative staphylococci and propanibacterium species as in this patients are likely to have the delayed onset that is 3 to 12 months the presentation present with chronic pain loosening of the implant and also gait impairment and sinus tract formation can also be there fever and leukocytosis are usually absent okay and staphylococcus epidermidis is a coagulase negative organisms which is commonly located on the normal skin flora and it is a causative organism for delayed onset of the prosthetic joint infection late onset infections presentation is more than 12 months after the surgery and are like to 
have been acquired perioperatively and usually occurs due to hematogenous spread from the distant infection site for example urinary tract infections okay now atypical mycobacterium rarely causes the pgi so we don't have to think about that okay and if it is causing then specifically in the immunocompromised state or local trauma Borrelia burgdorferi causes the Lyme disease and Lyme disease is present with acute intermittent attack of the monoarticular or oligo oligoarthritis not the chronic presentation okay Chlamydia trachomatis and salmonella species are often associated with the reactive arthritis when the person initially had an uh, gastrointestinal urine gastrointestinal or genito urinary infections okay then we see the reactive arthritis and uh, yeah Disseminated Neisseria gonorrhea infections most commonly causes a syndrome of migratory polyarthritis, sinusoviridis, and rash. Acute septic monoarthritis can be seen along with the disseminated gonorrhea, but the synovial fluid cell count is usually higher than fifty thousands. Okay, so basic objective of this question was prostatic joint infections can be acquired by perioperative contaminations or by extension of an overlying wound. Infections due to virulent organisms, Staph aureus, present within first three months of with acute pain, fever, and local signs of infection. Infection due to less virulent organism, coagulase negative, Staphylococcus aureus uh, present at delayed onset with uh, chronic pain and implant uh, implant loosening and gait impairment and sinus tract formation. Let's move further and talk about the uh, foot ulcers. Okay, so the patient with diabetes with multiple risk factors often develop the infection of the foot, which leads to infected foot ulcers. And uh, this is because the peripheral neuropathy is there, okay, which uh, causes decreased lower extremity sensation, leading to the impairment of the recognition of the minor damage. Hyperglycemia, that is elevated hemoglobin A1C, will be there, which impairs the immunity and peripheral arterial disease, further contributing to the impaired healing of the wound. Once the wound is there, then impaired healing. So peripheral neuropathy, hyperglycemia, and peripheral artery disease. contagious that is non hematogenous extension of the infection from the ulcers to the underlying bone causes the osteomyelitis okay so yeah uh, hematogenous non hematogenous use direct contagious one okay so causes osteomyelitis because this uh, complications may be asymptomatic patients with diabetic foot ulcers should be assessed for extent extent of the infections as seen in this patients the presence of the positive probe to the bone test that is palpate palpating the bone with a sterile or blunted wooden or metallic tool a larger ulcer more than 2 cm or an ulcer lasting for more than 1 week are increase likelihood for the osteomyelitis so if you see probing test is positive if you see ulcer is more than 2 cm per square and uh, it's for more than 1 week then you think that it can be osteomyelitis fever pain and elevated esr sedimentation rate and sinus tract formation may be present in the osteomyelitis cases most specific diagnostic test for osteomyelitis is bone biopsy and culture so the specific diagnostic test will be the bone biopsy and culture bone biopsy preferably pre perform perform before the antibiotic initiation allows the identification of the causative organisms and tailoring the of the antibiotic therapy okay so bone biopsy is performed before giving the antibiotic okay before initiating the antibiotic and this allows the identification of the causative organism positive superficial wound cultures do not reliable the product because uh, other organisms are also present in there even among the patient with diabetes the foot ulcers who don't have the osteomyelitis wound based culture should be performed following the debridement and curettage so if the person is not having the uh, osteomyelitis but there is a wound because of the diabetes then you have to do the debridement and curettage and then you have to perform the wound culture okay 
and uh, aseptically scraping the wound with the blade or the curette that is the the bridemaid the curette is okay rather than following a simple swab which is contaminated so yeah we have to do the bridemaid curette then we have to take the swab after that okay so management of the foot ulcer complicated by osteomyelitis includes the surgical debridement of the necrotic material and uh, prolonged that is multiple week antimicrobial therapy is needed amputation is the last option last resort okay whenever there is ischemia or necrosis okay so then we use the amputation it's not the first choice although an elevated esr that is more than 70 mm per hour is suggestive of osteomyelitis in appropriate clinical setting it increases the significant inflammatory process and therefore it's non-specific okay so we don't do the esr testing although the patient with diabetes are at increased risk of superficial fungal infection in infections and invasive fungal infections are uncommon cause of the osteomyelitis so the fungal cultures are not a part of the standard evaluation for the osteomyelitis okay routine blood cultures also helps in patients with osteomyelitis due to hematogenous spread for example infective endocarditis but are less helpful in the diagnosis due to direct extension okay so the main point for from this question was the bacterial infections of the chronic diabetic foot ulcers may be minimally or symptom minimally symptomatic and require specific assessment when the bone can be palpated with a probe or there is high risk of osteomyelitis then biopsy and cultures of the affected bone it critically confirms the diagnosis and also required for the guided management and biopsy is mainly done from the metatarsal bone biopsy if it is a, a foot ulcers okay yeah so that would be the answer we have to do the biopsy if uh, extreme uh, probing is uh, possible okay and if probing is not possible is simple ulcer then you have to do debridement and then then you have to go for the culture swab or all the all that thing okay now let's talk about the necrotizing surgical site infections the patients with uh, signs and symptoms of necrotizing surgical site infections uh, the specific signs and symptoms are pain edema erythema spreading beyond the surgical site and signs and symptoms such as fever tachycardia hypertension paresthesias anesthesias at the edges of the wound and purulent cloudy gray discharge will be there dish wash drainage sort of discharge and subcutaneous gases and crepitus will also be there so pain edema erythema and uh, fever tachycardia hypertension paresthesias anesthesias at the edges of the wound and purulent gray uh, cloudy gray discharge that is dish water drainage or subcutaneous uh, gas or crepitus will be there necrotizing surgical site infections are more commonly seen in the patient who are diabetic and are usually polymicrobial these infections are considered emergencies if they involves the facial planes and develops into necrotizing fasciitis the most important step in management of this condition is the early surgical exploration and assess the extent of the process and debridement of the necrotic tissue so firstly we have to do the early surgical exploration and then if needed then we go for the debridement of the necrotic tissue adjuncting therapies includes the broad spectrum antibiotics and also adequate hydration diet glycemic controls and these are also important okay but these are secondary to the surgical exploration so if we have to do this uh later on okay the first thing which we are supposed to do is give them the parenteral antibiotics and then we have to do urgent surgical debridement all right so yeah appropriate wound dressing and tried gluco glucose control plays a key and adequate role in surgical wound healing in diabetic however once the infection is established a definitive treatment or definitive therapy will be surgical exploration and antibiotic if needed negative pressure wound therapy that is vacuum assisted wound closure is a wound dressing system that applies subatmospheric pressure to the wound and accelerate the healing process 
it is reserved for healthy granulation wound and it is not used in the initially when the wound is simply got infected okay negative pressure wound therapy is used later on when their wound is so bad that it has to be healed early okay so then we use the negative pressure of wound therapy that is vacuum assistant wound closure intravenous antibiotics alone are sufficient therapies for the wound infections limited to the cellulitis and surgical debridement and is required when the infections penetrates the deeper skin layers and adjacent tissues as seen in this patients okay yeah and so we have to give the intravenous antibiotic only okay no we don't have to give that alone okay we have to do the surgical exploration first and uh, the next thing is the topical antibiotic uh, do not uh, play any role in case of the surgical site infection so that's it for the okay so now let's talk about the vibrio vulnificance so vibrio vulnificance epidemiology says that is a gram negative free living in marine environment ingestion of the oysters or wound infections and also there is increased risk in those who has liver disease such as cirrhosis or hepatitis so manifestations includes rapidly progressive that is less than 12 hours septicemia would be there that is septic shock and bullets lesion cellulitis can also be there that is hemorrhagic bulla and necrotizing fasciitis so this vibrio vulnificus wound infection is severe it, it leads to septicemia that is septic shock and bullets lesion and also cellulitis that is hemorrhagic bullas and necrotizing fasciitis diagnosis is made with the help of blood and wound culture treatment includes the empiric uh, in those with uh, likely illness as uh, high fatal okay empiric in those with likely illness as high highly fatal and uh, intravenous ceftriaxone and doxycycline is needed so empiric treatment only for those who are at uh, severe risk and intravenous ceftriaxone and doxycycline later on okay now also liver disease the hereditary macromatosis is particularly high risk okay because iron act as a catalyst in that disease so now Vibrio vulnificus is a free-living gram-negative organisms, bacterium that grows in the blackish coastal waters and the marine environment. Levels are greatest in the summer months, summer months, and uh, reaching as high as eight percent of the total bacteria in some areas. Infections are primarily acquired through the consumption of the raw oysters, which concentrate the bacterias, or through wound contaminations during the rec recreational activities, example sailing or raw seafood handling. Okay. So infections is because of the raw oysters either he is eating that or wound contamination due to recreational activity sailing or raw seafood handling okay most patients who become ill have the liver disease alcoholic or cirrhosis or viral hepatitis and those with hemochromatosis are particularly at greatest risk the patient with wound contamination typically develops mild cellulitis and those with liver disease or certain comorbidities example diabetes mellitus are at high risk of necrotizing fasciitis and you see a hemorrhagic bulla bullous lesion over there and also the features of septic shock so that bullous is like uh, really bad okay like blackish and sort of bulla is there okay diagnosis is made with the help of blood and the wound culture and treatment is with the help of intra intravenous antibiotic and treatment should not be delayed due to high risk of the death surgical debridement may be required particularly in high risk patients with serious infections okay the other options are pastorella infections are typically associated with cat and dog bites or scratches okay and uh, rapid onset of the cellulitis and necrotizing fasciitis this can cause the uh, rapid onset of that the patient who developed the wound infection shortly after sustaining an injury while sailing is because of the vibrio vulnificans so we don't have to think about the pastorella infection pseudomonas aeruginosa skin infections more commonly occurs due to hot tub not the ocean water okay nail puncture wound 
or ear piercing ear piercing nail puncture wound or hot dog are more prone to the pseudomonas erogenosa infections okay folliculitis and cellulitis are more common than in necrotizing fasciitis in case of pseudomonas erogenosa infection staph aureus and staph pyogenes are leading cause of cellulitis and erythropoiesis although these organisms may occasionally cause the necrotizing fasciitis particularly the streptococcus pyogenes but the lesions typically develops over few days not in hours okay and exposure to the ocean water in hereditary hematomatosis patients makes vibrio vulnificans more common and it develops so severe and within few hours only the sepsis and all necrotizing fasciitis basically okay now let's talk about the catheter associated urinary tract infection so catheter associated urinary tract infection is a common complications of urinary catheter use and can be caused by first extraluminal ascent of the microorganisms due to ability of some pathogens such as e coli enterococci candida and pseudomonas aeruginosa to form the biofilms okay so the organisms such as e coli enterococci candida and pseudomonas can form the biofilm and attach the uh, uh, catheter and then get inserted okay biofilm is simply a slime and close bacterial aggregates okay along with the catheter wall allowing them to reach the bladder within 24 hours of the catheter insertion next can be intraluminal infection that's which is less common due to impaired urinary tract uh, catheter drainage or contaminations of the urinary collection bag if urinary bag collect uh, urinary collection bag is contaminated or the catheter is uh, drainage is impaired then intraluminal infections can also occur so catheter associated urinary tract infection is most effectively prevented by avoiding unnecessary catheter use and minimizing the duration of the catheterization however in patient with neurologic neurogenic bladder bladder on long term catheterization is required and in this patient's clean intermittent catheterization that is cic clean intermittent catheterizations which involves periodic insertion and removal every 4 to 6 hours of a clean urinary catheter can often be performed by patients okay can often be performed by the patient and is usually initial treatment part of the initial treatment only okay now this clean intermittent catheterizations interrupt the extraluminal and intraluminal mechanism of the infections and compared with those with indwelling catheters in associated with the low risk of the uh, ca uti okay ca uti is simply the catheter association urinary tract infection indwelling catheter change monthly and can be considered in the patients who have the caregiver and who cannot perform the cic but are associated with the uh, and uh, increases of but are also increases risk of urinary tract infection strictures bladder spasm and also suprapubic tube placement is another option you can use okay so basically there are three types of uh, options for placement of the urinary catheter so these first is the clean intermittent catheterization which is uh, we have to replace the catheter every 4 to 6 hours and clean it and again then reinsert it okay and this is done by the patient themselves and also an assistant can do it if you have the patient and assistant around them okay and the another one is the indwelling catheters which is placed for for months and there are high risk of strictures urinary tract infection in that okay and the last option is the suprapubic tube placement which is another option okay bladder irrigations when antibiotic solutions can lead to the emergence of the resistant bacteria and can lead to increased risk of the urinary tract infection with the killing of the non pathogenic bacteria okay so you don't have to do that the application of the antibiotic cream in the urethral meatus and the antibacterial washing of the genitalia is not helpful in decreasing the case of the catheter associated urinary tract infections okay in the patients uh, using the urinary catheter antibiotic should be administered in the setting of uh, in the setting of a proven uti then only we have to give them antibiotics otherwise we don't have to give prophylactic antibiotic may increase the risk of developing the resistant organisms therefore we don't have to give the antibiotic prophylactically 
clean intermittent catheterization is effective measure for reduction of the catheter associated urinary tract infection in the patient with neurogenic bladder okay now let's talk about pelvic inflammatory disorders so pid symptoms includes lower abdominal pain and the abnormal bleeding okay so pid there is a lower abdominal pain and abnormal bleeding risk factors includes the multiple sexual partners age group of 15 to 25 previously pid previous history of pid inconsistent barrier contraception use or partner with sexually transmitted infections so if you have multiple sexual partner partner have the sexually transmitted infections or inconsistent barrier contraception use or pel previous pelvic inflammatory disease or age of 15 to 25 physical examination fever is more than 38 degrees celsius that is more than 100.9 degree fahrenheit cervical myelinus is also present and mucopurulent cervical discharge is there so mucopurulent cervical discharge cervical muscle tenderness and fever more than 38.3 degrees celsius okay treatment includes the outpatient treatment is the ceftriaxone plus doxycycline and inpatient treatment is cefotaxime plus doxycycline so outpatient you use ceftriaxone plus doxycycline and inpatient you use cefotaxime plus doxycycline uh, re remember that okay and uh, complications are tubo ovarian abscess infertility ectopic pregnancies and perihepatitis that is huge curtis syndrome okay so after the insertion of insertion of a progestin releasing intrauterine device the patient experienced three to six months of the irregular bleeding due to gradual endometrial thinning because progestin causes atrophy of the endometrium okay followed by amenorrhea the patient with stable amenorrhea who develops new onset of the uh, vaginal bleeding as in this patients require further evaluation in this patients with the change in the bleeding pattern and new onset of the pelvic pain the most likely diagnosis is the pelvic inflammatory disorders a microbial infections of the upper genital tract okay risk factors includes 15 to 25 years of age group multiple sexual partners and inconsistent barrier protection use pelvic inflammatory disease is typically a complication of nesaria gonorrhea and the chlamydia trachomatis cervicitis symptomatic patients initially have the abnormal vaginal bleeding with wiping and postcoital one due to inflamed and friable cervix so this patient has friable cervix okay remember that like they bleed immediately on touching only the cervical inflammations can eventually compromise compromise the endocervical barrier thereby allowing the polymicrobial vaginal flora anaerobes to ascend and infects the upper genital tracts developing tubes and the uterus this patients have may initially have intermittent pain however the infections and the inflammation spreads through the peritoneal cavity and constant pain develops the pid is diagnosed clinically the patients can describe the uh, can be prescribed with the empiric antibiotic broad spectrum antibiotic therapy the second generation cephalosporin plus doxycycline and to prevent the complications for that infertility and chronic pain we have to give this empiric antibiotic okay in the patient with uh, intrauterine device in situ the iud removal is not required removal increases the risk of unintended pregnancy and does not affect the treatment outcome okay so yeah we don't have to remove that iud okay that's it this is it for this lecture thank you so much for listening